thought that I was right Knew that you were wrong I chose the upper hand Over open hands Bitterness over understand I wanted to broach a subject today that's uh, particularly um, needful. Talk a little bit this morning about unforgiveness and unforgiveness in our families. Go ahead and take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 18. What is the highest form of giving or giving? That's just a little play on words, but, but forgiveness is an act of giving. Forgiveness is not optional in this walk of the Spirit. It's essential. You cannot walk in freedom if you're bound by unforgiveness. You cannot walk in grace if you are bound by unforgiveness. And you cannot walk with any real spiritual adeptness if you are unforgiving. Much of the unhealthiness of our souls and the reason that we have not progressed spiritually to where we should be is because we continue to accommodate unforgiveness in our lives. The need to forgive cannot be overstated. So Matthew chapter 18, and look in verse 23. It says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had would be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay you back everything. The servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, substantially, by the way, less than what he had owed his master. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servants fell to his, knee, fell to his knees and begged him. Be patient with me and I'll pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay his debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how our Heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. And that's, a, that's an important distinction there, that you will forgive from your heart. The heartfelt recognition of our own failings and our own need for God's forgiveness and our own ability to extend forgiveness to others are inseparable. I have no problem forgiving others when I consider what God has forgiven me for. Before we talk about forgiveness, though, let's talk about justice. Justice is the approval of what is right and the disapproval of what is wrong. God is just. He defines justice or equity. And since we are created in his image, we have been imbued with this sense of justice. It's part of our very makeup. Um, I've talked about this in fellowship before. You listen to two kids playing. After a while, one of the kids will take the other kid's toys, uh, one of his toys, 
And the other kid will say, that's not fair, right? Or give me back my toy. So even as children, there is a sense of right and wrong and justice that there are certain things in life that aren't fair. Justice is part of the natural law, the conscience that we read about in Romans chapter 2. And it's imprinted upon our souls by the Creator so that mankind can discern and rule and mediate. That's one of the main purposes of our civil law is to maintain what is fair, what is equitable. But Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Justice is retributive. Retributive means to pay back a penalty, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. So when we talk about forgiveness, what does forgiveness mean in light of this? Forgiveness means to pardon, to excuse an offense without exacting its due retribution. True forgiveness means laying down our right to remain angry and giving up our claim to future repayment of the debt that we have suffered, that we relinquish the debt. Now, uh, godliness. When we talk about godliness, godliness means in simple words that we are imitators of God. Turn to Second Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter 1. We certainly can't outgive God, nor can we outforgive God. Second Peter chapter 1, and look in verse 4. It says, through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Forgiveness is an essential element in participating in God's divine nature. And unforgiveness is the corruption of this world. Turn to Luke so Luke chapter 6, and look in verse 36. It says, Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use it will be measured to you. We should be gracious givers, gracious givers. Now, it's clear that there is a stern aspect of God. We've talked about this in our fellowship many times. The Bible says that God is a consuming fire. His commands are not to be trifled with. But with his judgment, God is merciful. I heard Janice in her manifestation this morning talk about the loving kindness of God. How often does, does David speak of this loving kindness and tender mercies? Keep in mind the Pharisees of Jesus' day, while these men quoted Psalms about God's loving kindness, the character they exhibited most was wrath and anger and judgment. We see the same thing today in Islam. They speak of merciful Allah, even while they mistreat and murder others. So there's a conflict there. And you'll find this conflict whenever you have people who do not walk by the Spirit of God. Matthew chapter 6. Go to Matthew chapter 6. See, God is a merciful God, and he expects us to be a merciful people. And if judgment is true, it will be imbued with this sense of mercy. Matthew chapter 6, 
I'm looking at verse 11. It says, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, it's interesting. If you look at the, the uh, a similar passage in Luke 11, it says, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who sins against us. So there's this idea of debt that's associated with sin. And that's exactly how the Hebrew mind saw it. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew minds saw sin, you know, the, that one person would sin against another person as a debt, as a debt. And when we've been wronged by someone, that, that person who has wronged us is indebted to us. And there's this notion because of that, that justice, right, that sense of justice that God uh, created us with, that there should be a payment of that debt, a debt. We even use the language of, you owe me an apology. You owe me an apology. Forgiveness is the canceling of that debt. It doesn't nullify it in the sense of the significance of it. When somebody wrongs me, that's significant, sometimes even more so than others. But forgiveness is a canceling of that debt. And this is what God does for us. Turn to Colossians chapter 2, Colossians 2, and look in verse 13. It says, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it all away, nailing it to the cross. I love that verse or those verses, that passage. I love it. It, <clears throat> it basically means that God took the debt as if it were a slip of paper with a debt written on it. He folded it over and nailed it to the cross. And the Oriental culture me meant that that debt had been taken care of. Each of us owed a debt. We know in the scripture where it says that the wages or the debt of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the idea, the very central theme to Christianity is forgiveness, that Jesus paid the debt by his sacrifice, and God forgave us our sins. Turn to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. And look in verse 5. It says, this is the message that we have heard from him and we declare to you that God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. If we claim we have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and we do not the truth. In the context of this teaching, if we claim we have fellowship with God, but refuse to forgive, we lie and do not the truth. Now, when I teach this teaching, a, a foreseeable objection would be, well, that's easy for you to say, you haven't suffered nearly as much as I have. A root of unforgiveness seems to be my particular offense is unique, and those rules simply don't apply to me. And my answer would be, from Hebrews 12, let us fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, 
scorning the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus Christ was the innocent blood. He hurt no one. He offended no one in the sense that he went out to harm them. He certainly offended people with the truth he spoke. But he did not wrong anyone, and yet he was crucified on the cross. Uh, that's about as unjust as you can possibly imagine. And that's, that's the redemption of our Lord Jesus Christ, that the innocent was paid as a, a propitiation for our sins. So when we start trying to say, well, you know, I have a right to unforgiveness, not when you look at Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ was able to forgive, so are we. So let's talk a little bit about unforgiveness. Where does unforgiveness come from? As we noted before, the children, you know, playing and saying, it's not fair. There's no payback or retribution. Unforgiveness shows itself in a range of different ways, from petty resentments and attitudes to vengeful malice. Oftentimes, we're not even conscious of our own unforgiveness. We simply start to become embittered towards the offender. Unforgiveness is so endemic to the nature of Adam, age-old civil conflicts between cultures. I was thinking this morning about the, the conflict between the Israeli and the Palestinians the European conflicts that erupted in two world wars, the first one killing 20 million people and the second one killing 45 million. I've spoken in fellowship about a book that I read called The Savage Nation. This was about the European countries following World War II when the governments of Europe had been so decimated by the war and there were no laws and no police to enforce them and how old cultural rivalries were vented in the worst ways, often against those who 10 years earlier had been good neighbors. Christian people, Christian people, rape, raping and murdering others in, in rival cultures, their hearts filled with vengeance. It's just hard to imagine. And you simply cannot worship God with an unforgiving heart. You can't do it. Turn to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 5. Look at verse 23. It says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and reconcile with your brother, then come and offer your gift. So God's desire is forgiveness and the acceptance of forgiveness. You see, for unforgiveness anchors a person to his past. You'll remember in Philippians chapter 3, where Paul says, Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting the things that are behind and straining forward to what is ahead, I press on towards the goal of, to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You cannot press onward with God for the prize if you are dragging an anchor attached to your leg, when you are minding unpaid debts from past offenses, you cannot mind the spirit. How many among you still refuse to forgive the offenses of former ministries and former ministers? How many refuse to forgive the offenses of other Christians they used to work with in ministry? 
You see, people become bitter and they become angry and their unforgiveness masquerades as, quote unquote, spiritual clarity. But it's not true. And Satan eclipses entire sections of these person's hearts and lives with darkness. They hold on to their unforgiveness with a sense of entitlement as if they've earned it. That's something. It's like their red badge of courage. So they have a story to tell. What they fail to realize is that by doing this, these folks disqualify themselves from the race. And this unforgiveness has a way of finding itself into other aspects of their ministry. So often it's the offended who later become the offender. We use this phrase, hurt people, hurt people. Why? It's their unforgiveness. They produce no real fruit in their lives as a result. See, the heart of the believer has got to be saturated with mercy, not only giving it, but receiving it. A person cannot travel spiritually light with unforgiveness in their hearts. When we refuse to forgive someone, that person lives rent-free in your soul. And that's a burden that none of us is able to carry. Go to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18. This is a, uh, a verse that's familiar to us. And in verse 21, it says, And Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times. And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And that's figurative meaning forever, <laughs> right? That this commandment to forgive is not qualified. There are no stipulations other than forgive, forgive. One of the uh, unfortunate things is that the unforgiving spirit is closely associated with a vindictive and a vengeful spirit. Go to Romans chapter 12, Romans 12, look in verse 17. It says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. See, it's, it's not always possible, but it's can be in the sense of, I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to do it as far as it depends on me. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath or God's anger. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That, that phrase, you heap coals on his head, is in essence that by your doing good, you will reprove him and make him feel bad about not doing good. And then it says, of course, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Forgiveness or the refusal to exact revenge in thought or deed is one of the weapons of our warfare. Remember we read about that last week? The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. I'll tell you something. Forgiveness is one of the greatest ways to pull down a stronghold. To refuse to forgive is to become overcome with evil. Unforgiveness embitters and hardens the heart. 
It's one of Satan's great deceptions. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Look in verse 14. It says, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That's pretty clear, isn't it? That the objective here is holiness. And holiness is associated with living at peace with people. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Wow, that's very clear. And when we don't forgive other people, a root of bitterness will rise up in our hearts and it defiles us and it keeps us from the grace of God. God knows this and so does Satan. Retribution is solely the domain of God Almighty. That's why God says, relinquish our problems to him and he will take care of them. Our job is to forgive. Go to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. We've read these verses in fellowship before uh, when we studied the book of Titus. In verse 15, it says, uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 15, it says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable and disobedient and unfit for anything good. So the idea here is this, that to a person who has a pure soul, a pure heart, and un, or a forgiving heart, they see things properly. Their perspective is clear, right? To the pure, all things are pure. But to a person who's allowed themselves to, to become unforgiving, to, whose heart has become bitter and hard, to them, nothing is pure. Their minds and their consciences are corrupted. Unforgiveness corrupts your soul. These people will claim that they know God, but their works will tell them out, right? So we don't see things as we ought to see in the present because we refuse to relinquish the offenses of the past. That's very important for us. God wants us to walk a holy walk. He wants us to see things as they are, not as Satan would have us believe they are. And in order to do that, we've got to walk light. We've got to be light spiritually and walk by that Holy Spirit. We can't walk by the Holy Spirit effectively if we're burdened with unforgiveness. And in our fellowships, we have to have our spiritual ears attuned to hear unforgiveness of our brothers and sisters and help them with it, right? If we hear unforgiveness in a leader, this should be a big red flag, and we should be wary of leaders that are unforgiving. It is just impossible for that unforgiveness not to touch that ministry. Unforgiveness hinders the development of intimate relationships. It poisons intimacy. This is a big reason that many marriages fall apart, is because of unforgiveness. It's because oftentimes a person is determined never to be hurt again, that they adopt a perspective of the offending person in their worst light. 
so as to defend themselves in the future. The person who offended them, they see nothing but good. And that's that verse that I just got finished reading from Titus. To the pure, all things are pure, but to them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. Their perspective has been jaded. They see this other person, they say, I know how you really are, right? And this is all defensive in order to protect themselves. Well, who is the one who protects our souls? It's God. God says, forgive, we forgive. That person may very well come back and hurt you again. But God says, forgive. He doesn't say arm yourself with, you know, defensive thinking in order to combat the person. He says, forgive. And what's even worse is that if you fail to forgive that other person, that oftentimes turns to contempt. And that's when things really are bad. Unforgiveness is absolutely contrary to grace. Go to first, or I'm sorry, second Timothy chapter two, second Timothy two. And look in verse one, it says, you then, my sons, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You cannot be unforgiving and strong in grace. They are mutually exclusive. The ability to forgive is one of the surest signs of having been forgiven, right? If I forgive somebody easily, it shows that I, I am very aware of the forgiveness in my own life. It's part of the proof that we truly receive God's grace. Those who are truly forgiven, truly forgive. Their own sins are of greater importance to them than the sins that they have suffered. There's this quote by uh, Ken Sandy. He says, we take God's forgiveness for granted when we stubbornly withhold our forgiveness from others. In effect, we behave as though others' sins against us are more serious than our sins against God. And that's a true statement. We just cannot be strong in grace if we are unforgiving. Unforgiveness flows from a self-righteous spirit. Scripture gives us the clear picture of the Pharisee. Self-righteousness is a very human problem. In the United States, in our culture, we have what's called the cancel culture, this lash of public disapproval when anyone dares to step outside the accepted public opinion, often for the most absurd reasons. We call ourselves free. Well, we're not so free. We are surrounded by scolds, right? People scolding, lecturing us in the most self-righteous tones. And just as unforgiveness flows from a self-righteous spirit, unforgiveness makes a person self-righteous. Here's a quote that I thought was really excellent. It says, the practice of comprehensive forgiveness overcomes our love for being right, our actual enjoyment and treasuring of our sense of being wronged. The constant practice of forgiveness leaves no room for self-righteousness. Frustrated condemnation of others and treasuring of old wrongs are not part of the artillery of God, but the slithering, slimy, deadly creatures of the prince of darkness. How about that? That's pretty clear, isn't it? An unforgiving spirit is closely associated with a critical spirit, a critical spirit. We call it Phariseeism. Go to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. <coughs> you know, it's interesting. Uh, in Romans, it talks about making no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. 
one of the provisions that we often make of the flesh is that we accommodate ourselves with this unforgiveness. <clears throat> in Luke chapter 6, look in verse 41. It says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? Wow, isn't that interesting? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. This critical spirit is critical and is marked by two aspects. The uh, the ability, you know, the, I don't know if it's, it's the ability, but, you know, this tendency to see others' faults and the failure to see your own faults. And how often does that go hand in hand? Oh, my gosh, too often. I've seen this in the past in my own life, right? That you can see everything wrong with somebody else, but, you know, you're not so clear on your own sins. And to a person like this, they provide stumbling blocks for their brothers. They think they're doing God's service, but they're not. They're not. They're causing their brethren to stumble. First Corinthians 13. Go ahead and turn there. First Corinthians 13. This is the love chapter First Corinthians 13, and look at verse 4. It says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, nor rejoice, uh, but, I'm sorry, rejoices in the truth. You know, we talked about... These verses last or a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the power of the tongue and I uh, had given the, uh, you know, the, the translation, the NAB translation of First uh, Corinthians 13, 5, which says love is not rude. It does not seek its own interests. It's not quick tempered. It does not brood over injury, brood over injury. You see, love does not stack sin against sin. How's the only way to avoid doing that? By forgiveness. Unforgiveness stacks sin against sin. There's a quote that I've been thinking a lot about, and I've, I think I've shared it in fellowship. I'm not sure. It says, treat a man as he is, and he will remain as he is. Treat a man as he should be, and he will become the man he ought to be. Love has vision. When we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, we have vision for their lives. We see them bigger than they see themselves, right? But we can't do this if we're burdened with unforgiveness for that same person. Love looks beyond the sin. It looks beyond the sin. Love rejoices when the person becomes what the word says he is in Christ. Unforgiveness begrudges that person of any kind of success. And, you know, this notion of love is not, I mean, Pollyanna, if you don't know what that term means, Pollyanna means, you know, life is great. It's, it's rosy. All people are good. That's not what we're saying here. It's not looking at life through rose colored glasses. But what I am saying is that this is the spirit of grace in a very practical fashion. The spirit of grace in practicality is Unforget or is forgiveness. 
It's forgiveness, that we forgive people their debts. Unforgiveness is spiritually degenerative. It has the propagating power of leaven. When Jesus talked about in the Bible about a little leaven, leavens the whole lump, what he was meaning was that darkness proliferates. It consumes. And this this unforgiveness that many people have is just a plain bad habit that we hold on to things, we ruminate about things that another person did to us, and it's just not right. You allow an unforgiving, bitter, critical person into a fellowship, and they will sour that fellowship. It guaranteed. Their words do eat as a canker, it says in the Bible. Unforgiveness is bondage. It's bondage. It's burdensome. It's carnal. Galatians 5.1 tells us to stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. Isn't that something? Forgiveness is liberating. It's liberating. So we talked about unforgiveness. Let's talk about forgiveness. Forgiveness is a decision just as love is a decision. I forgive you. You don't necessarily have to even say it to the person, but in your heart, you make a determination. I forgive this person their debts. God so loved that he gave and forgave. There is no greater act of giving than forgiving. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And look in verse 6. It says, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? This is what we were referencing earlier. Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with the yeast, with, uh, with the bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. And we purge out this old leaven, this old notion, these old standards, and we forgive people. There are plenty of reasons, and I think this is one of the reasons that, you know, unforgiveness gets passed down from generation to generation to generation, is that we, we pass on to our children the rationale of unbelief or unforgiveness, right? Right? I'm not going to forgive that person for this reason or this reason or this reason. That gets passed down. And the Bible says, look, purge out the old leaven. Purge out the old ways of doing things. Do them differently, that you are brand new in Christ. So learn from Christ. Unforgiveness has to go. Here's a quote. There is such a big difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. It takes two people to reconcile, so it's not always possible to be reconciled, but it takes only one person to forgive. So if people do you wrong, forgive them, whether or not they ask for your forgiveness. You cannot cancel their sin. Only God can do that, and he will only do that if they repent. But what you can do is set aside your own anger, bitterness, and resentment towards them that you forgive them. Isn't that something? The term I've heard used by others is, unless you're willing to get down on your face and repent, I do not accept your apology. 
Isn't that something? That somebody would say that to somebody else. That unless you get down on your face and repent, I'm not going to accept your apology. Well, that's nonsense. These people call that holding someone to account. It's a very self-righteous, self-important thing to say. My response to that person would be, who do you think you are, God? That's just plain unforgiveness, and we don't, we don't deal with that in this fellowship. Whether or not that person repents to God for his sin is between him and God. It's none of my business. God will deal with them as he and only he sees fit. Now, depending upon the seriousness of the offense, we can perhaps choose no longer to fellowship with that person in the future. But there is no excuse for unforgiveness. Remember, no matter how bad their trespass against you is, it, is, it has never come close to equaling your trespass against God. Here's another quote I wanted to read. Excellent quote. It is nothing but sheer wickedness for you not to forgive your offender for what he's done in light of all that you've been forgiven. When you compare the trivial offenses which you must forgive with the enormous eternal offenses you've committed against the holy God, the point is uncontestable. I think that says it all. And that goes right back to the parable that we talked about at the beginning. When a person is unable to forgive another completely from the heart, that is an indicator of two things. One, first, that he fails to see his own sin. His own sins are egregious offenses against God. And secondly, uh, these people are often dispropor they disproportionately weight the seriousness of the offender's sin, right? And that's, that's the point that we seem to keep coming back to. I ought to be aware of my own shortcomings and failures before I ever look over at another person and hold them in unforgiveness, ever. God forgives me every day. I would venture to say every moment of every day, but that might be overstating it. But the point is, God forgives me a lot. He forgives me a lot. <clears throat> so when somebody offends, is, uh, um, comes against me with an offense, that doesn't mean that we just wipe the slate clean, you know, as soon as they offend us or they insult us or they hurt us or whatever. No, there's a time to confront and a time to speak the truth. But I'll tell you what, it won't be truth that you're speaking <clears throat> if you go into this, into correcting your brother or sister with unforgiveness in your heart. It'll be punishment. And that's not what we're doing here. Go to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. Look in verse 14. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones be lost. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take him or take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. The point here being that you have to go talk to the person and be honest with them about their fault. But in your heart, you have forgiven them. When I forgive a person, it should be understood that I'm making four promises. One, I will no longer dwell on this incident. Two, I will not bring up this incident against you and use it against you. Three, I will not talk to others about this incident. And four, 
I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. How about that? I think those are four. Let me read them over again. Number one, I will no longer dwell on this incident. Two, I will not bring this, uh, bring up this incident again and use it against you. Three, I will not talk to others about this incident. And four, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. And finally, turn to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians 4, and look in verse 29. It says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may be that it may benefit those who listen and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. I'll tell you something. There is nothing that grieves the Holy Spirit more than unforgiveness. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you have been sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. I was thinking about the newness of the walk and the newness of God, that our God is a, a God that likes n- newness. Revelations 12, uh, 21, 5 says, behold, I make all things new. Second Corinthians chapter 5 says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation creation old things are passed away behold all things are become new god desires renewal and restoration both of which are impossible without forgive without forgiveness so in light of that it's just uh one thing i would like to exhort everybody to do um as we go into these holiday seasons and just generally throughout life um i would ask you to Uh, Pray to God that he shows you if you have any places in your heart of unforgiveness towards anyone and then forgive. So, all right, that's my message today. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for that word. We thank you, Father, for forgiveness. We thank you, Father, for mercy. We thank you that you are a God of mercy and that, Father, we thank you for that in our lives. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that your word says that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So thank you, God, for blessing this fellowship with that. And thank you, Father, for just making this a a habit of righteousness in our lives. In your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now there's rooms in my heart under lock and key where I kept in honest love and all my trust from the hurt that happened to me now i'm letting go of anger pride and pain i'm going back to a place where hope collides with grace again freedoms where forgiveness is why do i wait so Oh